Welcome to the Asking Why podcast. I'm your host, Clint Davis. I'm a marriage and family therapist and licensed professional counselor trained in trauma and addiction. The Asking Why podcast is for anyone on a journey of healing and restoration. If you are searching for answers to life's questions and want to learn more about root causes from a psychological and theological mix, this show is for you. In this podcast, myself and a co-host from Clint Davis Counseling and Integrative Wellness will interview guests on a wide range of topics in order to get down to the heart of the problems facing our world and understand why things happen and how to change the world and ourselves for the better. Want to learn more tips and tricks to living a healthy lifestyle? Visit us at Clint Davis Counseling and Integrative Wellness on Facebook and Instagram. If you want to meet our staff or book a speaker, go to clintdaviscounseling.com. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe today. Putman Restoration is a proud sponsor of the Asking Why podcast. Putman Restoration specializes in commercial disaster services, including water damage, fire, smoke, mold, and storm. Their goal and desire is to get your properties up and running as soon as possible after disaster strikes. Hospitals, schools, hotels, and large municipal buildings, malls, churches, and large commercial properties are their specialty. Manage properties nationwide? No problem. Putman Restoration services their clients nationwide. They are strategically partnered with elite restoration companies throughout the U.S. and Canada, giving their clients resources during disasters where normal companies would be tapped out. Trust the professionals at Putman Restoration when disaster strikes. Visit them online at www.putmanrestoration.com or give them a call at 318-453-5029. Hey guys, Clint Davis with uh, Asking Why Podcast episode 84. I just want to give a little explicit warning on the front end of this one that there's a couple of words and a couple of paragraphs of conversation around uh, human trafficking and abuse that can be very triggering for somebody who's been through abuse or has had a child recover from sexual abuse. And then uh, there's a little a little bit of language here and there. But in general, I just want to give everybody a heads up who's listening to this that, you know, it's a hard conversation. It We, we keep it generally light. It doesn't get too graphic, um, which I was very thankful for and try to you know, keep that way, but it's a heavy conversation and it's a real conversation. And so just want to give you the plug up front that, you know, take a deep breath, drink some water, take a break. If this is a hard one to listen to and you don't have to listen to it, it's not for everybody, but I think her story um, and her openness to tell it um, can be encouraging for people who are stuck in abusive situations and they don't know where to go and they don't know if they're crazy. And so the goal of the, the episode for her and for me is not to, you know, talk about graphic things and for her to trauma dump on the podcast, but as for us to just share her story and what happened with her and her children. And there's no way around having that conversation without being, without it being heavy and and a little triggering. So thanks for listening and we'll talk to you soon. Welcome to the asking why podcast. I'm your host, Clint Davis, and we have with us uh, Amanda quick. She's an author and a speaker and she has a amazing story. And so I, we reached out and connected. And so I wanted to kind of hear her story. Um, we've done trafficking before, you know, I've done work with the hub urban ministry and worked with human trafficking over the years. Um, kind of helped ro- write a program with them and was their director of recovery for a while. And so uh, when you reached out, I thought, man, it'd be awesome to hear your story. And I looked through your book and, um, so yeah, tell tell us Amanda who you are and kind of, um, what brings you to us? Yeah, absolutely. So again, Amanda quick, I, just recently released my memoir which is my story from 2016 after my then husband was arrested for attempted human trafficking in 2016 for trying to meet an 11 and 14 year olds for sex Mm. and you know i was a full-time stay-at-home mom i had three kids five and under i had no idea what he was up to and i had a ton of my own trauma about my own dad leaving and I was in so much shock and so much just complete disbelief that this could possibly be my reality that I I didn't, I didn't believe it for a long time. And we I actually developed a very deep trauma bond with my husband during his criminal trial. Mm. And, you know, a lot of people, when they hear my story, they assume I just immediately picked up and left and took the kids and, you know, on hindsight, maybe that would have been the thing to do. But you know, we operate with the best information we have at the time. And at the time I was, I was incapable of that. Yeah. I didn't, it didn't even occur to me to leave. All that occurred to me was to keep my family safe and protect my family. And at the time he, that included him. Yeah. And so, um, he was, you know, after he was arrested and charged, 
you know, this became public information as well. You know, this is articles in the paper out because this was a big sting that they had done with Homeland Security and the local police department. And, you know, and so if anything, I got more isolated, more cut off from the world because people who reached out to me wanted to know about the case, which I couldn't tell them about. And my my husband's story was that he admitted to uh, soliciting adult escorts and that he had basically was admitting to a sex addiction. And that is something he'd been doing his entire adult life, which he was very flippant about telling me. And, you know, I'm in so much shock. I don't even have an emotional response to that. I'm just like, oh, this this is my new reality. Yeah. And um, but his his whole claim was that he would have never, you know, done anything with children. He didn't think it was real. He was trying to figure out if he how to report it and you know, that he had this whole elaborate story. And I really, really, really wanted to believe that story. Yeah. You know, and he was, you know, the kind of person who had to solve the puzzle and had to figure everything out. And so I was trying to kind of wrap my head around that being a possibility and really just chose to believe him because I couldn't I couldn't grasp that he was a he was dangerous. It yeah. didn't it just didn't make sense to me. And so, you know, he was basically saying this is the first time anybody had offered children and he was trying to report it and blah 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 you know obviously statistically speaking that's near impossible but here we are and uh so i stayed in the marriage and i supported him through the criminal proceedings and you know i advocated for supervised visitation with the children i you know i now was at least while he was out on bond completely responsible for all three kids by myself with very little support you know, and they were one, four and six at the time. So very young, you know, I hadn't worked in five, six years. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, you're also a, a mother with a f- one, four and six year old. So exhausted and tired and, you know, doing exactly. all the things. All of that. that. Yeah. Right. Just, just, you know, motherhood in general at that point is exhausting. Yes, exactly. And now we've added, we've added all of these other things and, you know, and now I'm even, you know, and motherhood is already isolating in a mm-hmm. lot of times when, especially early on. And, so now it was even more so, you know, now I had disconnected all social media, every, you know, social outlet I had was gone. Yeah. And it was just the only safe person that understood what I was going through was my husband himself. Mm-hmm. Because even though he was the one who caused the problem, he was the only one I felt safe to even talk to about what was happening. And it actually deepened our connection for a while. And yeah, can you, you know, tell, can you tell people, uh, your definition of the trauma bond that was happening or kind of what that is? Yeah. Yeah. So what what was basically happening is i became so deeply bonded to him through the trauma that we were both experiencing because you know although yes he caused this he was also experiencing a trauma of getting getting caught and going through the legal system and, and at the time you're just thinking it's adult situation too exactly. right so it's a it's a little less dangerous uh when it's an adult situation and i'll make this clear and you can you know back me up on this or not but one of the things we talk about with sex addiction all the time is mo- most of the time right they're um a person who's a sex addict or struggles with infidelity or pornography or prostitution or whatever, right? There's a long history of trauma. There's a pattern, but most sex addicts aren't also looking at children or have a sexual attraction towards minors. Um, sometimes people can think that and they think, Oh, all perversions the same. It's like, no, uh, most people who struggle with, uh, minor attracted people or, or sexual orientation towards children are sex addicts, but very few sex addicts end up going the other direction. So I just want people to understand that even though you're sitting in this space where your husband's saying, yeah, you know, prostitutes, sex with other people, whatever, um, that's horrible to hear. But that's easier to, one, understand the danger and two have empathy for and say, okay, well, how do we get in recovery? How do we work exactly. through this? How do we stay married? Is that accurate? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Well, it, that's exactly where I was at because, you know, at least as I, you know, people recover from infidelity, people recover from addictions, people, you know, and especially when you have young kids and a young family, like I couldn't, I couldn't just grasp kicking him out Yeah. because you know, clearly he had some mental health issues. He had, you know, depression and anxiety that needed to be addressed. And we had to look at all that, but he was, you know, he was now being faced with it and had to. And on some level I was like, well, everybody's got stuff. I know his stuff now. Yeah. yeah, Better or worse. Right. (laughs) Right. Like, and that was how I was rationalizing it. Yeah. I hear that. And you're in survival mode. I mean, you're, so you're not even able to really rationalize anyway. Right. You're just going off of 
whatever it is that you can see. And then, you know, you have no supports, no resources. And, you know, like you said, everybody just kind of falls away and you're just by yourself with three little kids, man, that's tough. Exactly. And you know, that was, was very challenging. And because of that, because the only person I could really talk to was my husband, even though he couldn't interact with the children unless there was a supervisor present, it meant we were on the phone at, at some point, we got to be about like 24 seven, we were on the phone because it was the only social interaction either of us really had. And he was in my ear constantly. And so every thought I would have, he would be right there. Mm-hmm. And it what, what was happening to me, like psychologically, was my thoughts weren't my own. Right. My reality wasn't my own anymore. Everything was built based on what he said and and what we were doing together for the family. And if if I started to have emotion that did come up, if I started to get you know upset because wait a minute, my husband of six years has been cheating on me with all these people, and you know all of the things started to bubble up he would immediately shut it down with, well, I'm changed and I'm working on it. And, you know, he'd show up with flowers and notes and yeah. all of the things that I wanted to hear. Love it was, bombing. you know, all the love bombing yeah. things. And I would be made to feel guilty for having feelings at all. Mm. And, you know, this was a pattern that had existed in our marriage already. I just didn't recognize, you know, how, how much that was there because, you know, he had a pattern of not coming home a lot. And he had a pattern of getting sucked into projects, which, Obviously now I knew more what he was up to, but at the time it was, you know, he was just working late. And, you know, every time I said, can you make it home for dinner for the family? Well, I'm doing the best I can and I'm not trying to make you feel bad. How dare you imply I'm not doing everything I can for the family. And so the same level of that's not how I intended you to feel. So you shouldn't feel that way. And I'm changed and working on it would, would cycle through. Yep. And now did and, you get into therapy at that point or? Um, so I had a little bit of therapy, um, in the very beginning because as another big blow up 10 days after he was arrested, I found out I was pregnant with my fourth child mm. and I did not know what to do wow. at all. I was terrified. I never thought I would even consider termination, but at that point that was the best option I could come up with, but I was tearing myself apart you know, after having three kids, loving the whole motherhood thing, and then considering, you know, terminating was a really big, big turmoil for me. And so I did go see a therapist to help me work through that choice. Um, And then I started to see her a little bit here and there after that. But I really, I also really struggled to even talk about it because everything was still in my head from him. And it was, no, we're going to work together on this. And and he was in therapy based on his his lawyers saying he needed to go in therapy. And he started, you know, he was starting to take antidepressants and seemed like he was doing better. Um, but, you know, from a support system standpoint, there wasn't much. And, you know, the criminal process is slow and, you know, you don't, you don't, <laughs> there's not a whole lot that people, we think it's going to be fast and all these things and it's not. Yeah. Nobody gets and in a hurry. That's for sure. No. And, you know, he had the evaluations done for probation and they were looking at whether they were going to offer him a plea deal. And eventually the, after his evaluations came back fairly good, at least according to the the lawyer standpoint, they offered him a plea deal of only four years probation. So he never even was had to serve jail time. And I was upset because I was like, well, I thought you were innocent. And I thought that there was this, you know, he had basically claimed there was a a draft email to Homeland Security and he'd been searching how to report it. And I was like, if there's this evidence that you're you're innocent, why aren't we going to fight this? Like why? And basically from the lawyer standpoint, it was basically an impossible thing to fight and he would be you know i mean they're offering just probation that that he really needed to take that and so um in 2017 he pled guilty to what the plea deal was was attempted solicitation of a minor which is still a felony but much lesser than the original human trafficking charge and uh received just four years of probation he had to complete a sex offender treatment program has to be registered on the sex offender registry and goes through probation as a sex offender which is a different version of probation than regular probation they're much more monitored um and so but it also there was a statute in colorado that just changed at the supreme court level that said that a sex offense does not automatically remove your right to parent and your constitutional right to parent is more basically valid unless you could prove that the kids were the direct victims. And so there's this belief that you won't harm your own children, essentially. And so because of that, when he pled guilty, he essentially gained back his parenting rights. 
And so he was able to move back home, which at the time we were, we were trying to work on the family. We right. were, we were really bonded. We had almost gone through another honeymoon of sorts because he hadn't been allowed to be at the house and he was in my ear all the time. I would have to get a babysitter and go try to see him. And it was this, it, you know, people don't, from an addiction standpoint, we, you get love bombed and there's all of this really happy hormones. They're doing all the things that you always wanted them to do. And then you have a withdrawal and then that's all you want is the next, the next version of it. And that was what was happening with, with the separation as well as we weren't allowed to be together, but that's what we wanted because that was the person who understood what we were going through. Yep. And so after he moved back home, I hoped that things were going to get back to normal-ish, that we would get in, you know, couples therapy, we would start to work on what was happening. And he got offered um, to work with, because uh, he had lost his job through the criminal stuff, but he'd gotten offered a contract work with a friend of his and he was going to work remotely. And I thought, okay, we're going to get back to some semblance of normal. And his mental health was almost worse in a lot of ways. And he couldn't focus, he couldn't do anything. And I realized pretty quickly that I was actually going to need to figure out how to go back to work because it had been six years and the, you know, the gap of employment was only getting bigger. And if I was ever going to go back to work now that we were in this situation, the sooner the better, because I would probably only make half of what he made, but you know, we'd be less in the red mm -hmm. and we could, I could at least start to build up something because I realized that I couldn't depend on him anymore to financially provide for us. Yeah. And so I started looking for work and I went back to work in the middle of 2017 and things shifted for me from a mental health standpoint quite a bit when I went back to work because I had been living in this, this bubble, this reality bubble of just me and my husband and my kids and screw the rest of the world and all their judgments and all their, their projections. And yeah. all of a sudden I had left that bubble and I didn't want anybody in my job to know who he was, who I was, what was going on. I wouldn't say his name. I wouldn't, you know, maybe they, maybe they would connect my last name with what they read in the paper a year ago. And that freaked me out. And I so I was, I was separating myself from this bubble. And all of a sudden I had these two worlds that couldn't, couldn't connect. And I didn't know which one was the problem because I was enjoying back at work. I was actually doing well. I was making friends. I was, you know, I started to really get back into the, I'm more than just mom and wife and homemaker. And for my mental health, that was also really, really good. And, you know, I had started exercising and I was just like, I was getting back into me, but then I would come home and still have to sort of be in this bubble of, of wife and mom and, you know, and, I, I didn't know what to do at that point. And I started to see more and more of what he had been up to in the, at least with the adult prostitutes. And so I had, it felt like every time he looked at me, you know, and want, wanting to be intimate, I would immediately feel, oh, that's how he looked at them. Mm -hmm. Every time it would feel like they were in the room with us. And I was it, like, there were ghosts everywhere. And I was starting to push away and I was starting to not be able to, interact with him in the way that he wanted. I didn't feel as connected. I, I, the whole idea of like the company Christmas party where you're supposed to bring your spouse right. sent me into full on panic attack because I, I didn't even know that he would be allowed to go and I didn't want him to go. And I didn't want to have that conversation with anybody. And so I was really, I started to really struggle and it got to the point where I would come home from work and half a bottle of wine before I could even talk to my husband. I couldn't hardly look at him. And it was, I was just trying to numb everything it's because I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to deal with it. I had supported him through all this and now I'm a mess. And now I want to separate and blow my kids' lives up after I just finally got things normal again. Mm -hmm. And I also found myself at the, that point in time attracted to a coworker because, you know, things are difficult in this and uh, I, I started to have more conversations. He was the first person I opened up to about what I had been going through. And he responded in a way that surprised me. He didn't, he wasn't, he didn't give me sympathy or, you know, anything like that. He said, wow, you've been going through all of that and kicking ass at work. Like, it was just this, like, he looked at me with a more of an awe and a, than a, than a, you know, a pity. Yeah. And I really, I Saw really you as a person. that. Yeah. Like, I felt like I'd finally been seen in a different way in a, the first time in a long time. And so I was was really drawn to to him and I got to the point where I realized I wanted something to happen and then I was like what the hell am I doing mm -hmm. I just stayed 
in this whole thing. And now I want to blow up my life. And I took, I took a lot of that on myself. You know, I I think a lot of, a lot of women do this, but not just women. We take this, this, we have to keep the family together. That's our job. That's our, you know, the kids need, need their dad. Cause I lost my dad, you know, from a divorce and he wasn't around after I was nine and it affected me and I didn't want to do that to my kids. And, and so, but eventually it felt like there was almost a force outside of myself and I couldn't stop what was happening. And, and I also decided I wasn't going to cheat on him in secret. I was going to tell him, I was going to say, I'm, I'm not okay. I know what it's like to be cheated on. I'm not doing that. So I'm going to tell you what, what's happening. And I had the conversation, the very hard conversation. And at first he was upset and then he really quickly shifted to, well, you go do what you need to do, but we'll still keep the family together. Mm. And it was almost like he was giving me an out, like you go, you go take care of whatever you need and, but we'll keep things as normal as we can for the kids, which at the time kind of let me off the hook. I didn't expect that. I thought we were going to hindsight's like huge red flag, right? (laughs) You know, hindsight. Yes. (laughs) Um, but at the time when you're freaked out about, you know, of course, young of kids course. and everything else, you're like, oh, okay. Well, you're sure, still in your survival brain still happening. I was still in that. survival yeah. mode. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. You know, and I'm still, you know, because he's on sex offender probation, he can't go to the kids' schools. He can't go to the activities. Like I'm still having to take care of a lot of these things while also working full time. Yeah. You know, he can, he can keep the kids at home by himself. And, and the little one wasn't in preschool yet and he can keep him, but like, I still had to manage a lot of it. And so I'm, I'm overwhelmed still, but I'm, you know, I, I'm trying to figure out what I can do for myself. And at this point, that's what that is. So I start, I start dating my coworker, you know, while living with my spouse, with my kids, it's a little messy, <laughs> a little messy and confusing for everybody. But at the same time, I start to have fun for the first time in what feels like a really long time. You know, we went on road trips and go to music festivals and, you know, I got to, I got to experience joy and happiness with somebody that didn't have ghosts in the room. And, and that was a really good thing for me just to really feel into myself again. Um, But then a few months after all that started, I got promoted and I was now going to be his boss. So we added a new layer of messy and I decided enough, enough already. I needed to, I needed to get my shit together really. And, and so I broke up with him. So that was, so kind of the, that, uh, the relationship, the the fair relationship or the agreed upon affair relationship was more of a psychological kind of bender, right? Like binge purge, like you're going on a, I'm going to be in this state of limerence and, and just get the high and do the thing and feel like a person. Um, because you know, it's a drug. Yes, it is. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. And, you know, what had started to happen because I was gone a little bit more at that point, uh, my, my husband had started to tell the kids that I was, I was leaving them and he started to, some of the manipulations and stuff started to come out and he was talking to them as if I was the problem and I was the one leaving and mommy, it was basically, he was basically implying I was choosing my, my new boyfriend over them and their behavior started to shift towards me quite a bit at that time and i didn't quite understand what was happening yet but i could i didn't feel as connected to my kids anymore and if i needed to be away from my husband i had to leave the house which meant i had to leave my kids Mm -hmm. and like he never would leave he would never leave ever for any anything and you know and so if i wanted to spend time with my children i had to take them to an activity outside of the house because he was always there and so i really felt like i couldn't connect to my kids i couldn't and and they were being fed a lot of information that you know made it seem like i was the problem my three-year-old at the time says mommy are you going to go have another baby and leave us Mm. you know like those kind of things are being exact and i'm like what you know and a three-year-old doesn't come up with that idea on their own and so you know i was turning to kind of be really frustrated with what was happening but i didn't really know what to do and so when i broke up with my boyfriend, I, my husband took it this, oh, we're going to get back together. Like, no, we're not like, absolutely not. I'm, I'm disgusted with what's been happening and I'm not okay with any of this. I don't want to blow the family apart and I don't want to make this harder on the kids, but this is not okay. And he started pushing boundaries even harder. He started trying to touch me when I didn't want to be touched. He started trying to send me love notes, explicit love notes. He would, he thought if he could do just say anything that I would, I would come running back to him because that's what used to work. Right. He used to find the right thing to say and I would forgive him. 
And so he just kept pushing and pushing and pushing. He did not take any boundary at face value. It was always how how far can I push? And, you know, we had separated bedrooms at that point and he would try to come into my space. And it was just like, I, I felt unsafe in my house at that point. And, you know, we had had some arguments in various ways where I felt like he was chasing me around the house. Like I couldn't ever end the conversation. Yeah. I had to end the conversation by slamming the door in his face, in which case he would be screaming at me from the other side. Yeah. And, you know, he had written me a, a, a letter at one point admitting all of his, all of the things that had happened as he thought if he admitted and apologized that I could then forgive him. But all I saw was everything that he had done through our entire marriage where he knew that he was going to hurt me and he did it anyway. Yeah. And it was just like, you are callously calculating and I want nothing to do with it. And so, you know, things in the house were escalating and getting more and more challenging. And, and this is what, I started, this is in 2017 This would be 2018, 18, 18 okay. now. Yeah. And, you know, I realized like, I'm, this is not, I'm, this is not okay. And I had already started talking to a lawyer just to try to figure out what that was going to look like. Cause he, he was a sex offender on probation. Like what, what is actually going to happen here? And next thing I know he files for divorce. He files for divorce and also files a order to try to remove me from the home and claim that he's the primary parent Oof. because I've been working and out of the house. And so he's going to claim this primary parent. And I'm like, you're, you can't even go to their schools. Like what the, yep. it didn't make sense, you know? And he had arranged where he can kind of drop them off a couple blocks away or whatever, but it didn't, it still didn't make any sense. And I was probably the most mad I had been at him at that point because it wasn't even the marriage I was upset about. It was that he was doing this to the family and doing this to me after I supported him through all of that to try to remove me from the house. And um, we had actually, in the midst of um, me dating, we had actually purchased another house for him. Next, it was in the same neighborhood. And so the idea was we would eventually need more space and we would still be close for the kids. And, you know, and he wouldn't move. He wanted me to move. I was like, what? What? And yeah, so we. Pure insanity. Pure insanity. That's what it felt like. And he would do, um, and he continued to do this false equivalence thing where, well, you did this. So it's equal what I did. And, you know, a lot of you, we have insecurities. We, we know that we are, we don't do everything the best all the time. And so if they can push on your, your insecurities yeah. and the things that you are struggling with, and you're going to feel like maybe you did do something wrong and maybe you are the problem. And, and he would do that all the time. And he would talk to me like he knew something I didn't know about everything. And it would just, it made me feel, you know, completely unsafe. And like, there was something else going to happen. And, you know, the next shoe was going to drop. And we went to the temporary orders hearing and, you know, we, we basically said, you know, he's a sex offender probation and we don't know what's really going on with his mental health. We would like to, you know, take precautions and have, you know, he can have, you know, afternoons and weekend time with the kids, but I was trying to keep overnights with, with me and his treatment therapist and probation officer said he was exceptionally compliant and they didn't have any concerns. Mm -hmm. And so the, the judge basically said she can't remove overnights with what we had provided. And, you know, he was trying to paint me as a drunk and, you know, all of these things in court, but none of it was really relevant. But the part that was relevant that was that there wasn't enough evidence to remove overnights and I would have to basically get more. And so we started a 50-50 arrangement where the kids were actually going back and forth between households four times a week, which was insanity. But that was what ended at, ended in court. And so we started that and you know, my lawyer started going, okay, what, what information do we need to get? How do we wanna actually proceed here? And things started to just continue to get worse between me and the kids. Like now that he was moving out, I thought, well, I could reconnect to my kids and I could, you know, we could spend time together in a different way, but it almost felt like they were more volatile towards me. It was like, I, they didn't, they didn't even see me as a parent anymore in the same way. And they started saying, well, daddy says you're mad at him and that's why we can't be a family anymore. And mm. everything was my fault. Yep. And, you know, they're young kids, they don't understand. And, you know, and he, he still wasn't working. And so he was, he was with them even more because I, they had to go to after school care when they were with my days and, you know, and if you were working full time with kids and after you barely hardly see your kids, you know, it's dinner, bath, bed, and that's it. And you do it again the next day. 
And so it was, it was, I was having a really hard time and the boundaries just kept moving even with my kids because he was video games and candy and right. fun, fun libraries yeah. and all these things. And I was like, no, we need, we need structure. And, and so it was this really difficult be- between households as well as the things that they were, they were hearing. And so it got, it escalated to the point where they were even getting physically violent about coming over to my house. And at that point we had gone through mediation, didn't settle parenting time, but we did settle finances. And we had, uh, I had asked for a parental rights evaluator to get involved in the case. And every state is a different version of this, but in Colorado, uh, it's a third party who's a mental health professional interviews, everybody. We asked, I asked for psychological evaluation to be done on both of us because I, I didn't, I need to know what we were dealing with. And, um, and so she was the one I was able to kind of funnel everything through. So everything the kids would say, I could press to her and I was keeping, you know, copious amounts of notes on every transit transit uh, transition, every basically daily interaction. And all of that was able to go through her and the really bad transition that we had right as, um, right as the report was about to come out was when they were physical with me. And so they would, they would actually leave and run back to his house. We don't want to be with mommy. Mm. And what I didn't know at the time is he actually recorded that interaction um, and sent it to her because he was so very proud of how much they didn't want to be with me. But when he did so, he also recorded him telling them over 20 different times how much he loved them and how cute they were being and how fun they, they were acting, encouraging the behavior, right? And she called him out beautifully and basically said that he was the cause of the alienating behavior and he was the cause of a lot of this and uh, the mental health reports showed that he had dependent personality disorder, which you know he had become he was dependent on me to meet his needs, and he was now becoming dependent on the children to meet his mental and emotional needs. And and I was like, well, that that makes a lot of sense. He was diagnosed again with major depression and anxiety, and I was psychologically normal, uh, which was you know it's good to double check. <laughs> and um, and you know the biggest thing that the psychologist said was. You know, I needed to be more cautious when I did date in the future and be aware that of the confusion for the children, which was totally fair. Of course. Because- I mean, yeah, I mean, it's easy for somebody <laughs> on the outside to go like, well, that was probably not a, the best call in the world. But at the end right. of the day, like when you're going through it, I mean, you're looking for any lifeline that you can get. You are. You know, and exactly. yeah, exactly. So, you know, it's like, OK, great, great feedback. But, you know, also. OK, what do we do? What do we do with all this? And despite all of the alienating behaviors, despite the mental health stuff, ultimately the report still basically said that, you know, we should have essentially 50-50 with the decision-making being somewhat more on my end for when it came to school and extracurricular activities, because those were the things we were fighting about the most, because if anything took away from his parenting time, he would have a huge issue with it. And he would want me to take them and then take them immediately back to him, adding additional transitions, which was already challenging enough. And I was really frustrated with that. You know, there were that whole summer, he basically, they went to summer camp only if they were my days. So they would wake up at his house, come to my house so I could take them to summer camp and pick them up and come back to my house. But if it was his days, they wouldn't go at all. They would miss the pool days and the field trips and the things like that because he couldn't take them and he didn't want me to take them. And it was just, it was always a fight about something. Yeah. Um, so she was basically saying, I will be in charge of those decisions, but ultimately with some, you know, she also added some, like, if, if he, you know, if the transition was so close to my next time, then they would stay with me and things like that to try to minimize. And I thought, well, I mean, I guess this is, this is, we have to try because yeah, I don't know what gonna to do. Get, right? Yeah. And that's what it felt like. I, I felt like it didn't feel good but what what else can I do here? And so we offered a settlement that basically matched her recommendation. And during the month that we had the settlement on the table, things started to shift between my with my kids again. I started to see some really scary behavior happening with my middle child. And I um, I went to a school event that he was having. He was doing some presentation and was very excited. He didn't think I was going to be able to get off work. And can I can you can I come home with you and to my surprise, dad said yes. And, but it was just him. So we got some special, just mommy time and he's, you know, middle, middle child. So he's getting like one-on-one time, was, at the time. He's six at this point. Okay. Yep. 
and special one-on-one time. And so he's very excited and, you know, you want to go get some ice cream and watch a movie and all these things. And he sits down to watch a movie and he kind of climbs into my lap and he starts wanting to like kiss on me. And I was like, whoa, what is happening? And I, you know, I didn't want to scare him, but like this, the, the energy behind what he was doing was completely not okay. And I started to go, what is going on with my child? Like, what is happening? And I started to be a little freaked out and I started to, I kept hearing grooming in my head and I was like, what is going on? But I also didn't want to jump to conclusions. I didn't want to freak out. And then, um, uh, then, then the bottom really dropped out again and I was driving them to school one day. And I, I remember the day very clearly because I was, I was giving a presentation at my job in front of the whole company that morning. And so I was repeating my talk in my head as I was driving, not kind of tuning them out. And as I was pulling into the school, I parked the car and my middle son says, sometimes I suck on daddy's fingers, just like that. Mm. And I was like, what, excuse me. And again, can't really say anything. Can't do anything. Have a good day at school, but I'm, you know, I'm having a what is going on moment. And I called my lawyers. You have to be very careful about making any kind of new accusations in the middle of a divorce case. And I talked to the child's therapist and she says, you know, ask him to show you what that means. Because, you know, kids, kids, it could be nothing, but ask him to show you what that means. Mm-hmm. And so another week or so goes by and I ask him to show me and it's basically what I feared. Right. And Super graphic. Yeah. And so I call her back and I say, this is what he did. And she says, if he had done that in front of me as a mandatory reporter, I would have to report it. And I, sh- I said, okay. And I called my lawyers and they said, well, you're with the therapist saying that you report it. And I said, okay. So I reported it to child protective services, you know, and, and I don't know how these systems work. I don't know how much time has to go by. I don't, like, I don't know anything. And so I reported it and I also reported it to his probation officer and his sex offender therapist. Like I'm, I'm, this is not okay. I'm not, not. And we also pulled our settlement at that point. We were like, we're going to court. And the child protective services guy came and interviewed my son and in our home. And he, uh, he introduced himself just as, as like a kind of, I, I called him a therapist because my kid already knew what that meant. And he basically my son is so scared at this point because he just met this guy and he's kind of talking to him. He's hiding under the kitchen table and he goes, Oh, your mom told me about that game you played with your dad. You still do that. I was like, what, this is how you interview a six-year-old mm. like what, you know, and he's terrified. My, my, my kid is, and he says, no, not anymore. And that was it. They dropped it. Case, case closed. Um, probation polygraphed him and I wasn't even able to see the details of the polygraph, but they decided that he was cleared. Polygraph no to a six-year-old or no, polygraphed my uh, my husband at the time. Gotcha. Because probation does sex offender pro- on probation get they use polygraph right, right. a lot, um, and so they polygraphed him and decided all is fine, and they dropped it. And I was like, what? Like this is a man who you know, and it's and it's hitting me at this point. This is a man who was arrested for trying to have sex with an eleven and fourteen year old, and my kid is now showing signs of being groomed, mm. like it is loud in my face all of a sudden. Like, and then I start seeing all of the red flags that I missed years ago. Right. The, the fact that I was 18. Together, yeah. Yeah. The fact that I was 18 when we started dating and he was almost 30 and that he wanted to see the pictures of me at 16 and 17 in, in inappropriate situations. And, you know, the fact that he wanted to uh, have other people join us in the bedroom when I was 19, like all of these red flags came flooding in front of my face. And you know, all of the things that, that I had been ignoring and not seeing were, were really loud. And so I'm freaked out. And this is really my rock bottom point here, because not only is this all happening, but now I'm forced to put, send my kids over there four times a week without me, without any supervision. And the system is basically saying, I have to prove that something is happening now today with them to even count the fact that what he did years ago, it's irrelevant because his constitutional rights apparent is more important and and i'm like what <laughs> you know we think the system is supposed to help protect us and that's not true the system is only punitive it's only reactive to what has already happened and yeah, not preventative and it's not and so i'm and the agencies that are supposed to be preventative aren't doing anything and so i'm i don't know what to do i've hired the people i've done the things and you know i'm trying to follow their advice but i'm 
I don't know what else to do. And so I was, I was back in therapy at this point, because at this point I'm, I'd been experiencing PTSD symptoms for right. extended periods of time. Every interaction with my husband sets off panic attacks in me. Every conversation I'm freaking out and every interaction is high conflict. And so I'm, I'm back in therapy just as somebody, and she's trying to do like EMDR with me. She's trying to help calm my nervous system. And as I'm leaving her office one day, she says, have you ever thought about seeing a psychic? I was like, what? what's like from my regular mental health professional therapist. And, and I was like, I mean, I'll no. do you, is that even real? Like I'm thinking fortune tellers, like I'm, right. I'm an agnostic my whole life. Like, and uh, she says, no, no, I know, I know a good one. I, you know what? I'm going to try anything. Like, sure. Send, send it over. <laughs> Nobody else can help me. Maybe this lady can. <laughs> and so I'm like, screw it. I'll go, I'll go see her. And so I go see this lady and you know, never, never really been into any of the things. And my mom was very spiritual growing up, but I, I rejected a lot of it, but I'm willing to try. And I sit down in her office and she basically says she sees spirits and angels, like they're people. Like she's, she's, she's a true believer, sees them like, just like anybody else sees another person. I'm like, okay. And she says, you know, she starts basically telling me that there's this past life that I'm, that I have with my ex-husband and, at that in that life he was a drunk and he was physically violent but you know there was still addiction and deviant behaviors it was just showing up differently and that things were okay until we had kids and she starts telling this story about how i didn't think i could i could leave because of all these reasons and it's like she's saying the things that have been in my head over the last couple of years about why i can't leave why i have to stay for the kids why i have to support him like all of these things and i'm like this lady's in my head this is weird <laughs> and so i'm like okay i'm listening and then she tells me the story how in that life it, things were got things started to escalate and i got between him and the kids and he ended up throwing me down the stairs and beating me to death hmm. and as she's telling me the story my body is having this like visceral fear response and i start to go that's why i'm so scared of him because i was terrified of the man you know i had felt like he was stalking me and i felt like you know he always was in my head and can know things i didn't know and I would, and it had so much fear and I didn't, he never laid a hand on me. And so I didn't totally understand. And she was telling me, she was basically explaining, this is, this is the fear response. And this is, you need to get a hold on your fear. It's like, okay. And then she says, the reason you're sitting here today is because you have to make a choice. And I said, okay. And you haven't fully chosen that you were done with this pattern with him. And I said, well, I'm choosing. And she says, no, you need to mean it. I was like, okay, what, what do you mean? And so what I was starting to see is that there was still some part of me that didn't want to give up on my family. They didn't want to give up on him ever getting help, That I wanted him to want to get help. I wanted him to get better. I wanted, whether we co-parented or my kids had their father in their lives, like I didn't want this situation to be what it was. I, even, even though it was right in front of me and loudly, I, I didn't want to be here. Mm -hmm. And so there was still some part of me holding on to some kind of hope that he was going to get better. And or that it was, was all a dream, I'm sure, you know, that, exactly. that, yeah, that, you know, you didn't have any straight up evidence just yet. So there's probably exactly just that, like, yeah, can, is there, is there a better explanation here? Cognitive like, dissonance of just like, I'm just stuck pretty yeah. much and pretty much. And so she was calling it out and she was saying, you haven't chosen. And I had actually heard this a few different times. Like the mediator actually was calling me out for indecision and not choosing. And I was like, I don't know how to put this together. Yeah. And well, it's really you know, easy it's for people on the outside to, to hear this and listen, when children are involved, I know people's, you know, their hackles get rose up and they, they see any kind of yeah. neglect or abuse and they, they think, Oh, I would never do that. Um, but people don't know what they don't know until they're in this situation. I don't know your backstory either. And I'm assuming from what you said, there's some trauma in there and there's, you know, you said divorce and, you know, some of these yep. things. And, and so, yep. you know, you're playing with the abandonment from your father and, and all of these yep. things that are already in there that no one's ever walked you through or talked you through, you know, faith is not a thing. You have no supports in that area. Like, you know, exactly. you're just isolated and alone as a girl. I mean, an 18 year old is a, a tiny girl getting married to someone who's a lot older, who, obviously is manipulating and grooming and all of those things to you. And so of course you're trying to find a way out. Of course you're trying to find any little light to go. This isn't true. This isn't real. And, and a lot of times, you know, I'll work with sexual abuse victims um, and their mom never told, but they knew or they suspected or there's something and they live in the house. And what I try to tell people is like, 
Yeah, but in order, like you would have to have some very, very specific evidence because in order for you to believe that or to go that far down the rabbit trail, it's just such a cognitive leap, you know? Yes, and so exactly. unless somebody's been through, they really don't understand, again, not justifying it, not excusing it, right? And I know you wouldn't say that you excuse that, but it's like at the end of the day, unless you're in that situation, you just really don't know what you would do or what you would think. So I no, just say exactly. that, I just say that to you to say like, you know, I know that's probably one of the hardest things you live with today is just replaying some of that stuff and working on that in therapy and going, how do I forget myself? How do I, you know, let that girl that was going through that and, and not let that be who I am today. Or at least that's exactly. what I hope that you are working on. Yes. Well, and so, you know, this conversation I'm having with her where she's like, you have to choose. And I, basically I'm seeing all of that. I'm seeing all of the choices that I have made to still hold on to hope. And, and I, and I'm seeing that on some level that's caused where I am in the, at this point in time, because I've still given hope. I've still said, yes, we can try to figure out how to do this. And so I say, okay, I see it. I'm done. I'm done. And I'm not, I'm not doing that anymore. And she said, okay, good. Now I can help you. And, you know, she was feeling into different things as psychics do. And she said, you know, he's, he's not choosing to get help. He's just digging his hole deeper. Mm -hmm. He's not choosing to actually come out of this. And she's like, from where I can stand, he also has his own lifetimes of trauma, but he's not wanting to face it. And so you have to make the choice to basically say goodbye to trying to help him and focus on yourself and your kids and getting mm -hmm. out of the situation. And she said, there are people who are willing to help you. You just have to keep asking. You have to keep trying. Everybody knows somebody. And so I left that with this new round, new renowned, like, okay, I, there's more I can do. I don't know what it is, but there's more I can do. And what happened over the next six weeks was literally miraculous because I went to work that same day and I was talking to a friend who like worked in HR and she said, you know, nobody knows this, but I have an uncle who works for ICE and I'm going to call him because I'm not okay with this. And she calls him, he puts me in touch with Homeland Security, who puts me in touch with the arresting officer that put him, the cuffs back on him in 2016. He vows to try to help me. The Homeland Security is appalled that we were never interviewed, that our house was never searched, that nobody had ever actually taken any steps to make sure that my, me and the kids were okay because we were not in a position to make those decisions. And the police officer reopens the Child Protective Services report, gets my son actually forensically interviewed, which he didn't disclose. Things had, at that point, it had been much too much time, but he was very clear. Just because there's not a disclosure does not mean anything didn't happen. It mm -hmm. just means there was not a disclosure. Yep. And then um, my realtor actually suggested I call the district attorney. It's like, sure, I'll call everybody. And the district attorney said, I can't really help you, but you know what I can do is I can unseal the case file for you. Because another thing people don't realize is the family members, we don't see the evidence. We don't see the case file. We don't get any of that information. We, we all we hear about is what we hear, hear from the, the person. And when it doesn't never actually even goes to trial, we don't, it's all sealed. And he says, all I have to do is redact the identifying information and then it's, it gets public record. So I will do that for you. And he said, I will get it to you. And so for the first time ever, I'm actually able to see the specific conversation that happens between him and the undercover agent. And at that point, that is the irrefutable evidence that I needed mm -hmm. because I'm able to see the interaction, the conversation. And, you know, and, I had, had three you know kids this with man. the man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I had three kids with the man. Yeah. I have, you know, years of intimacy with him and I knew some of his preferences and, you know, I knew the way he spoke. And so there was irrefutable proof. And, you know, he, he had a couple of fetishes that were right there. And I just went, I can't unsee this. I can't not know. He absolutely would have gone through with this. And yeah. this is not the first time. And like, it's right there. Oof. And so I would like that hit me. And again, I'm still having to send my kids back over there, but I'm also looking at them differently. And I'm realizing that all of the behavior that they're acting out isn't because of them. It's yeah, because it's of the reactions they're having trauma and the responses. And yep exactly and the, the energy that they're experiencing and the questions that they have and so i just i start recording the conversations i start trying to spend more time with them at bedtime asking how things are going i started reading books about keeping body safe mm. and i was reading a book to my um all of them uh it's called like a kids to kids guide to keeping private parts private and yeah, i'm reading great. this book and um uh you know my my son stops me when we get to the point about if anybody shows you pictures or videos of naked people that's a red flag and he goes oh but it's okay if it's animated right 
And I just took a deep breath and I say, here's more, here's more evidence. Here's more things. And, you know, he, I had learned that my, my ex had moved his bed separately from the other boys and he was climbing into bed with him at night. And so I got that recorded. I just started to getting stacks and stacks of evidence. And my, my evidence binder was like a three inch packed binder full of stuff at this point of all of the things that my kids disclosed and all of the interactions and things and the, the new evaluators report, cause she ended up doing a second report came out where there was even more evidence and she still was recommending some parenting time, but her reasons were protective of me because she had seen issues where people had 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 only supervised time and they spent that entire supervised visit alienating the other parents yeah. and the kids end up losing both parents. And so she was very worried about that. And so she thought that if he had a little bit of time that he wouldn't, he wouldn't do that, but I had full decision-making that was her recommendation no matter what, because she said, I shouldn't have to deal with that. She also diagnosed him with a new personality disorder, passive aggressive personality disorder, which is not one I knew existed, but you know, every interaction was that it was a constant fight. Mm-hmm. And so at that point we're ready for court court is in February of 2020 and you know, I'm standing up really for the first time loudly in front of everybody. And, you know, we use the evaluators report. And this is right everything. before COVID hits too, right? We don't know this yet. Oh, well, no, I know. I'm like, I'm thinking about it right now. And I'm like, <laughs> we don't know this yeah. yet, but yes, February 28th, 2020 was my court date. And, you know, everything that couldn't come through that evaluators report came through me, you know, everything that happened with my son, you know, and, and while it was technically hypothetical, you know, um, hearsay, my attorney was pretty sure the judge would want to hear it as proof of my my state of mind. And so she let all of it through. Uh, we even had, you know, the police officer verify the criminal reports. And, you know, this is like the first time I'm seeing it. So my explanation for why my support has changed is very clear at this point, because before it wasn't clear. It was just they were just playing off that I was a disgruntled ex-wife. And now it was like, no, no, I'm, I've got some serious concerns and you know we we rocked that hearing and i felt like okay we actually have a chance here and the judge was appalled that he was sleeping with them actually ordered him on the spot to stop that she was very upset by that and a few days later march 3rd which is the day before my birthday um the order came through and she gave him one last chance because he had ignored every single recommendation the court had given him she basically gave him a laundry list of things that he needed to comply with and regardless, she was immediately removing all overnights and he was going to go down to just two afternoons a week. And he had six weeks to basically comply with a bunch of things with get a job, get more evaluations done, you know, get family therapy involved, like all of these different things. And if he did those things in six weeks, he would have the like every other weekend schedule. And if he didn't, he would only get supervised visitation. So she was basically saying, you choose. Mm-hmm. He did not a single thing on that list. And yes, the pandemic hit two weeks after our divorce. So the world shut down, which I'm sure made it more challenging, but he also didn't do anything on the list. And the every, you know, the two afternoons a week stopped in mid-April as as soon as those six weeks were up. And my ex at that point called my my two son, my older two are their birthdays are in April. He called on their birthdays. And that's the last time we ever heard from him. He at that point, he never set up supervised visitation. He just vanished. Wow. And that was that. As soon as he lost control of me and the situation, that was it. It was over. He didn't fight anymore. And, you know, her, the order basically said after 120 days passed, supervised visitation is the permanent parenting plan. And it's now been almost three years and there's been zero contact. He hasn't paid a dime of child support and he has had zero interaction. And as far as I'm concerned, it can stay that way. Wow. So what, what has come of your children? They've been in therapy, I'm assuming. Yeah. Looking through all that yeah. trauma. So they were in therapy during a lot of this. And, you know, with COVID, therapies stopped because remote therapy doesn't work very well for young kids. Um, but, you know, COVID was actually an amazing healing opportunity for us because they were never quarantined with him. They were all of a sudden, we all came home together right? My job went remote. They were remote and all like everything was shifted. And so we got this amazing opportunity to heal as a family in a different way. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I ended up leaving my corporate job during all of that. And we spent the summer just playing and being outside and 
reconnecting in a very different way. And, you know, I made the disclosures that I had wanted him to make about why their dad was in trouble this whole time, because that was one of the original reasons we got them in therapy was you don't want middle school to be the, the first time they learn about this. Yeah. This is the age of the internet. Like, um, and so I had the conversations about what happened in as age appropriate way as I could with, you know, that their dad, you know, has a sickness and he's, you know, basically needs to, needs to get help and that we're wanting to, him to do that. And that the judge has, you know, ordered him to do those things. And he's been on a grown up timeout called probation and, you know, all of those kind of words, but yeah. that he was basically trying to harm, harm children and do things that only grownups are allowed to do with other grownups. And, you know, they were five, five, seven, almost eight and nine when that all, that all happened. And so, you know, it's now been a few more years and they're getting older and have a little bit more understanding and understand sex just a little tiny bit more. And so as time has gone on, we've had more conversations as it's come up, you know, my middle son's probably the, still the most sensitive. He always was the most sensitive. And, and that's, I think why in a lot of ways he was the target because he was the, you know, the sweet, you know, boy who didn't want his daddy to get in any more trouble. Right. And he's actually the one who's wanted to talk about it more than the others. My youngest at this point doesn't even remember his father because he was really, you know, COVID changed everything and they don't, most of them don't remember much before COVID. Um, My oldest remembers more, but he's also on the autism spectrum and is not fully, uh, he doesn't, the emotions are hard, harder for him. He's much more logical. Yeah. So and the, so, go ahead. go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, I'm assuming, you know, that's just an ongoing thing you have to deal with and yes. work through and, and build it upon is. in therapy. And it is exactly. And it's, you know, having open conversations and being willing to talk about it. And, you know, one of the things I learned as the child who also had a divorce and, you know, in my childhood is my mom didn't tell me the truth of what happened. My mom didn't tell me and so I then believed my dad later on and mm-hmm. blamed my mom. And so, you know, they, they played each other back, you know, in a different way. And that was really harmful for me. And I, I know, obviously we can't have the adult conversation with them, but having as much understanding as I can with them and letting them have the feelings and, you know, why can't daddy, why can't we call daddy? Well, we can't because he made the choice he made and putting mm-hmm. blame really where it's due. It's not something they did. It's not something I did. It's the choice that he made because he has a sickness yeah. and really trying to make sure that they get that he made this choice. And, you know, that's been my, my big focus. And then also, you know, working through my own healing and journey. And that's really where I've been in the last few years is I jumped into, okay, there's clearly more truth to the universe. There's clearly more out there. And whether you believe in psychics or, you know, angels or not, it really didn't matter. I needed to shift myself to get to the point where I stopped having the the system be the one to protect me. I needed to get to the point where I realized that I needed to go do something else. Mm -hmm. And I did those things. And so, you know, I started learning different healing modalities and trying to understand trauma and trying to understand what happened and why this experience happened to me and how, how I can heal myself and my kids, but also how I can be, you know, an advocate and light for others. Because I realized, you know, as I, as I've written my book, I, nobody's ever told the wife story there. It is not out there published in this way because there is so much shame and guilt around being connected to anybody who's done anything like this. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm not, I'm not to blame for his crimes. That's good. Yeah. I think uh, I'm incredibly proud of you for sharing that because there are so many victims out there and so many women and men that, that have gone through the manipulation and the abuse and the trafficking and the exploitation and and the gaslighting and and all the, all the things we now know. And and really, you know, all that's relatively new, you know, a lot Mm -hmm. of those terms have been around forever, but our work in that area to really help victims um, is, is new. And so um, I'm proud of you for putting that stuff out. Um, I'm proud of you for being vulnerable. Uh, obviously you've done some really good work in therapy to see that you, your identity and your worth and value is not tied up into who he is exactly. and what he did. And I know that's going to be a huge work you have with your kids to help them see that, you know, that's your blood, that's your father, but that doesn't mean that's who you are, or what you're going to turn into. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I'm so proud of your bravery and, and what you shared on here. You did a great job. Um, I Thank mean, you. you're really, you're really pretty short out of this whole thing. A couple of years out of the, you know, the court case mm-hmm. and COVID. And I mean, we're in 2023 already, which is crazy. Um, 
but I, I'm extremely thankful for your courage. And so, you know, thank you for Absolutely. sharing your story on here. And I hope that people that are listening, even though it's, it's heavy and hard to hear, um, you know, that if anybody's going through a similar situation or if anybody, you know, and even not to the right, there's a spectrum. There's yeah. everywhere from somebody who's trafficking people to abuse, to betrayal, um, that you know that you're not alone and there are people that are yeah. out there that understand. And also don't stay with the system. Keep fighting, no. keep pushing against the system. Don't let them tell you, well, this is enough. This is all we can do. Um, exactly. Keep advocating for yourself because this, like you said, man, the, the system is not preventative. It doesn't understand trauma. It doesn't understand sex addiction. It doesn't understand the neurology of all these things. It just understands crime and punishment. And yep. at the end of the day, while you're surviving daily with your kids going to see your husband, they're doing other court cases and dealing with what they're dealing with and just kind of pushing the docket down month by month, day by day. And every second matters. So exactly. No, it, it was so loud for me that, you know, it cost me over $75,000 to have this fight and mm -hmm. it was a hard, hard fight. And the amount of people who end up sharing custody with their abusers and their children's abusers is, is a lot. And the majority of people don't have the outcome I had. And, you know, I, I really want to do what I can to not only help people feel less alone in their own stories, but, you know, I, I would like to advocate to start to change some of these things. Cause to me, the fact that we have to educate at our expense, what trauma does in when it exists in every single area of the world is kind of a, ridiculous. Like <laughs> hey, everybody it, has a psychological response. Yeah, to yeah. It's wild. This. It's wild. I mean, that's, you know, I spend my time, we, I do a lot of work in churches. Um, cause as, as a Christian, I believe that, you know, ultimately that, that Christ, all the things you said are, are for me teachings of Christ. And so it's like, yes. um, our worth and our value is not based on who we are, but based on who God says we are. And he loves us unconditionally. Um, and that's kind of the, but even that has been, um, uh, in the church has been, uh, taken and, and kind of moved into behavior modification still, right? Don't drink, don't cuss, don't anybody who does. And so we, sometimes we say our worth and value doesn't change, but then everybody treats you as if it does. Right. Exactly. And so exactly. if you, if you haven't met a Christian who, and I'm not talking about you specifically, but just anybody listening, if you haven't met somebody who actually lives that out then yeah, yeah. We're, we're really harmed by the religion part of it because it's yeah. just like everything else. It's, it's just like the judiciary system, the prison system, you know, um, school that it's saying your worth and value is based on what you can do and whether exactly. or not you can get your stuff together. And that's actually not it, what Christianity teaches. No. And I've actually met very few Christians who truly live by that. And I wish there were more because, you know, whether you call it Christ or spirit or source or the universe, it it's language. It's, it's really about how, how you feel inside and what's, and that your value is not based on this outside perception. And, you know, I think that it's really important for people to recognize that nobody can take that away from you. Mm -hmm. Nobody can take away the truth of who you are from you. And you get to decide, you get to, you have the choice to decide your life. Yeah. I always say, uh, you know, there's only one thing you have to do to have worth and value and that's breathe, yeah. right? You just have to be alive. You just have to be here. And everybody who uh, is breathing and alive has intrinsic worth and value um, that's God-given that says you are loved because you're my kid, not because you can do. I, I always say with my you know, five- and eight-year-old, I'm like, it'd be like if, my, if Grady, my oldest, came up with a stack of Legos and he said, look, Dad, I built this. Don't you love me? Right? I'd be like, no, dude, I love you because you're my kid. Whether you can build the Legos or not, it's irrelevant. And, yeah. you know, so, you know, for me to you, like, you know, I see that you're finding your worth and your value intrinsically. Um, yep. You know, I hope that that continues to be um, a journey for you and that, you know, the feeling that you have, that spiritual journey that you have, that more truth is revealed to you and that you you mm -hmm. continue to walk in that, that you're loved and you're valued um, and that you continue to pass that on to your kids. And, you know, I just pray your prayer blessing over you and your kiddos that um, they can, that they're, are right. I've been through so much trauma in the military and all these things. And what I try to remind myself is like, I'm not kind of inheriting the promised land. I'm trying to give that to them. Yes. You know, I can't, I can't help that. I wish it would have been different and I wish I wouldn't have had sexual trauma and, you know, divorce and all the things that come with my story, but I'm getting to do this now because of that. Right. And you're, you're starting yes, this exactly. journey where, although it's horrible, 
right? Scripture yes. says that God makes beauty from ashes, right? And so there, there are these. It's it's not he, God calls these bad things to do these things. It's these bad things are going to happen because you live in a broken world, yes. and so God's alternative is either do nothing with it or make good out of it. Yes, exactly, and, and, and so, that's exactly how I see it. Yep, I'm I'm on some level grateful now. I'm grateful for the experience because I wouldn't be the person I am today without it. Right. And that's the crazy part about trauma recovery, right? And work and therapy is, is that when you, you would never believe that in the beginning, when you get on the other <laughs> side of it and then you're like, Oh no, I mean, I wouldn't do it again. Like people ask me, would you join the army again? And I'm like, no, I wouldn't go through it again. But would right. I, would I, uh, would I give it up? No, because it made me who I am. And so, yeah, I just, again, I just lift your kids up and ask that they hopefully, um, that their story will be, look at the light that I'm bringing to the world because of what my mom did and what God did through her and, and how she was brave. And that is going to mean so much more to them than what their father did or didn't do. Exactly. Exactly. And that's my goal. And my goal for everybody out, out there listening and who reads my story, hears my story, you know, that to empower them and inspire them to also realize their value and their worth and what they're capable of if, if they decide they are. Absolutely. And, and it's so encouraging because a little bit of good can outweigh a lot of bad and your story is a lot of bad. And <laughs> the fact that you it know is. you have walked through that um, and you're doing good with it, man, it just speaks to speaks to the, in my, in my opinion, how good God is. And so, you know, I just thank you for your time today. Um, if you Absolutely. need anything from me, I mean, I'm mm-hmm. glad you're in therapy and all that kind of stuff, but if you ever just have questions or if you have any mm-hmm. faith questions, if you just have something that mm-hmm. comes up and you're like, Hey, I know you're not a crazy Christian. And so can I ask you questions about that? <laughs> I would love to have uh, any dialogue that you want through email or whatever. Um, thank you for sharing awesome. with our viewers and our listeners. And guys, if you want to check out her stuff, can you give your, uh, your ads and all that for yeah. them? Yeah. So uh, the sex traffickers is the links to my uh, book and my story. And my other website is amandaquickhealing.com. If you want to get in touch with me, I'm on Facebook and TikTok. and feel free to reach out. I'd love to engage with anybody who resonates. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Amanda. And um, thank you for listening, guys. And God bless you guys and have a good week.